You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 92. This is a special episode. I'm talking to Dr. Wendy Dean. She is the author of If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine, and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First. This is an incredibly important topic. Another challenging topic is complications. So join me this Sunday, August 13th at 6 p.m. Central for a free webinar, Thriving Despite Having Complications. Head to BossSurgery.com to register. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have an absolutely amazing guest. I could not wait to have her on because she has a phenomenal book that is certainly making the rounds as it should. This book, If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First, is an incredibly impactful book that I think that we should all read now because I think we all feel the problems and we living, we're living some of these stories but she has a simple gift of writing these stories in ways that make them like we're there. And of course we are there, but she puts them in ways that we can see from outside. In particular, the first chapter being a surgeon too, I was like, she really does describe exactly what it's like start to finish. And it was pretty revealing to me to step back and read this chapter and watch this and see where the problems are, like where some of our mindset traps are. When you hear the story externally, like that's a terrible idea what you guys are doing. (laughs) But when you're living it, everyone is like, we're not seeing the big picture. And I think you just have a really great gift of giving us the big picture. So I'm so excited to talk about only a few things because there's so much to this. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but I'm really excited about this, as you could tell. But anyway, Dr. Dean, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Oh boy. What do you want to know? Maybe start from the beginning. So tell us a little about about what your medical career has been like, and then what led you to write this book? My medical career has been a bit of a wandering one. I, I I went to medical school first, like most, I think like most people who want to become a, a doctor, know that they want to become a doctor when they're really young. The first thing I wanted to do is be, be a pediatrician because I didn't know what else existed. I very quickly put that aside. And when I left medical school, I started a surgery internship. And I loved it. And there is nothing I think that suits me better than the immediate gratification of cutting and curing. The problem was that there was so much about a surgical career that was out of my control. And my scheduling, my OR days, how quickly my rooms turned, all of that. And I I knew that it was just going to be a terrible match for my Mm -hmm. personality. Yeah. And so I ended up leaving my surgery residency and going and working in very rural ERs for a couple of years. And also quickly learned that as much as I love the adrenaline rush of that, I I missed knowing people. That that 15, 20, 30 minute couple hour encounter just 
was not, people were still two dimensional. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and did a psychiatry residency. And I felt like psychiatry was one of the places where it would be really hard for me to get bored, which is Mm -hmm. also another trap that I fall into. (laughs) And so I felt like the brain was enough of a black box and psychiatric treatment was changing so quickly and our knowledge base was changing so quickly that in the course of my career, I probably wouldn't get bored. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. And I... I really, I loved it, but, you know, as, as most of the psychiatrists who will listen to this, I know it's a surgical podcast, but I'm hoping that psychiatrists listen to it too, because we are not that different, no matter what people (laughs) say. (laughs) We just have knives. Well, right. I mean, there are ways to do psychiatry. Yeah. You know, my, my co-founder in moral injury of healthcare, my co-author on the book is a plastic surgeon. Mm -hmm. It is easy for us to get along and we, we share more experience than we don't, I think. But anyway, as, as any of the psychiatrists who might listen to this know, when, when we deinstitutionalized psychiatric care, we also started systematically defunding mental health care. And it became harder and harder and harder for me, no matter what business model I chose, to try to make a living practicing in a way that I thought was best for patients, but that was still sustainable for me. And so in the end, after about a decade, I decided that I couldn't, the best way for me to make a, a sustainable living was to become a prescriber, not do any therapy at all. And I, I really, that was not a way I wanted to practice. So I ended up leaving medicine altogether or leaving clinical practice, I should say, and going to work for the U.S. Army doing research funding oversight for hand and face transplants and regenerative medicine. Very cool path. And I think as most wandering paths are, it sounds like you followed your interest, not just your interest, but your skill set and your personality type. And it sounds like you really listened to who you were. And I think that's a really valuable lesson of how we end up where we're supposed to be by really being honest with ourselves of who we are and what we really want to do. Yeah, I think introspection is something that we that we don't take enough time to do. We don't, it's hard to see the value in that until you've kind of gone a ways past it and you're looking back in retrospect, but I think it's, it's really, it has served me well for, for most of my career. I can imagine that that retrospectoscope is a very valuable thing. doesn't help us at the time, but well, no, no, but it can help you make future decisions. If you really, if you really understand why you made the last one. It will help you make the next one a little bit better. It helps you trust yourself. Mm-hmm. So, no, how did this book come about? So I know that, I mean, it makes perfect sense why you would look at the, the basically the medicine changes because you lived a small portion of it that mental health suffered when we kind of came in and said, we're not going to practice the way we did before. And you already saw kind of the corporation coming in on such a, it's a big scale, but you were there living it and a little bit able to see that within your vision. 
but take us through what led to approaching the medicine as a whole. Writing a book was never on my bucket list. I'm just going to be honest with you. I would point people to the dedication of the book. I, so I have been told over and over again by people, you should write a book. You're a really good writer. You should write a book. And I was like, I have the attention span of a gnat. That's not a good idea. And, <laughs> and the, the more we got into, the more Simon and I got into this thinking about moral injury and, and reframing how we're thinking about clinician distress, the ideas got bigger and bigger and an hour long talk was just enough to scratch the surface and a 1500 word essay, even 10 of them strung together only got us so far. And I will give credit to Sam Shem, all credit to him. We were at his house for dinner one night and he was reviewing, he was reviewing the galley copies of man's fourth greatest hospital, man's fourth best hospital, whichever. And, and he, he looked up and he said, you should write a book. And of course I burst out laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I Um, love it. Yeah. But also to his credit, he kept after us. And for over the course of several months, he would pop in periodically to the, our email and say, Hey, do you have a publisher yet? Have you written the, the proposal yet? And he gave us introductions and he really, he saw the value in this idea and wanted it to be bigger. Thank goodness for us. So how did that go? Did you guys just have regular meetings or how did it work? <laughs> well, so first of all, we had to find a publisher. And I I think I could paper at least at least one wall in my house with no thank you very much emails. But that's the way publishing is. It's hard right now. And we found. I love how you're like, I'm not going to write a book. I'm not going to write a book, but I'm going to persist. Search yeah, is well, I mean, recognize that. Shem. That's what you're talking about. We recognize right? that persistence. <laughs> and also there was Shem. And then by the time I got two or three of them, I'm like, oh, no, you don't know. I'm I'm actually, this is going to be a good book. You watch. <laughs> I love it. They propelled you forward. I love it. Yeah. So we ended up finding a really amazing publisher that's a small publishing house. But when I talked to the publisher, it was kind of an informational conversation. And after about 15 minutes, he said, you said you had a proposal. Why don't you send it over? And man, it was the best. It was the best choice we could have made because it was a small house so they never put pressure on us for a deadline. It was never, we owe us three chapters by this date and five chapters by that date. It was, we want this to be a good book. So take the time you need. The other amazing thing that they did was they knew, they believed in the idea, but they were like, all due respect, you are a physician. You're not a professional writer. So you might need help crafting these stories. So they matched me up with a developmental editor who was actually the person who was assigned to help me bring these stories to life and to bring it out. And (laughs) she actually referred to it 
kind of as a writing residency. <laughs> and then by That's the end so of it, true. yeah, no, it was, it was totally true. I mean, I did this, I wrote 12 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 months. Holy cow. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. It, it is, it is no joke. It's no joke. Yes. I, yeah. I just published a book too, but I too got help because I realized there's a lot of mental blocks to that too. You have to really have a strong reason to do it. And I imagine I'm starting to kind of understand as you're talking, because these stories are so powerful. And of course, once you start realizing how important they are to share, then you just simply can't keep them to yourself. I felt the same way. And that's really what drives us to like a lot of us that are trying to help the profession of saying, we care so much about this, that we are willing to overcome discomfort or we're willing to spend the time because it's so important. And so first, before we get into the content of it, what does it feel like to have that book in your hand that you spent all that time, 18 months, all day, every day, putting these things together? What was that like for you? It was surreal. It Even holding it in my hand, it did not feel real. It really, I, I don't think it, I don't think it really sank home until the release date when, well, it, okay. It started maybe a little earlier than that when we started getting some of the reviews and then it was like, Oh, wait a minute. This, this, wow, this is real. <laughs> yeah. So, you and know, Kirkus reviews came out and it was a fabulous review. And then the wall street, we thought the wall street journal was going to review it. And that was terrifying. <laughs> I can imagine. I mean, people don't realize like you're putting something out there too. It's just like us as physicians looking at patient reviews. I can only imagine what that must feel like, that anticipation and worry. <laughs> well, it, it's the Wall Street Journal, right? And and I was writing about the business of medicine as a physician. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, mm. luckily they chose not to take the knives out, which was really nice. Yes. I'm so happy for you because I can only imagine it. And thank you so much for overcoming all that discomfort and all the time it took to get to this point. So let's actually talk about the book. Now, the way that this is written is basically following people and going to depth and telling their stories. Where did you find these people? Did you know them ahead of time or did you have a problem you wanted to solve and you found a person with a story? It was It was something of both. There were certain stories in medicine that we had to tell. And then there were other people that I met and I thought, I I need to tell their story if they'll let me. But it wasn't easy to find people who would tell their stories because it's dangerous, right? It's risky. Yes. It's risky to put your story out there, especially if there's anything that could be construed as critical to your employer, to healthcare as a whole. And so for every story we have in the book, and that's what, 12, there are at least three or four times as many that I wanted to tell and couldn't. I've experienced that same thing too. I've talked to many people and interviewed them and said, it's up to you if you want to do this or not. And most, you know, a lot of say yes, but but several say no for, for understandable reasons. Right. Right. So my goals for this book were to be able to tell the story of what it's like to be a physician, 
what it's like. Because I think people have an idea of what a physician is, but they don't see behind the curtain. And in part because we're quite protective of our patients and we don't want them to know what's going on behind that curtain, right? All the things that we're dealing with because our patients are dealing with enough. But I thought it was really important to get that story told so that patients could understand what their physicians are going through, so that families could understand what their family members are going through, you know, the the physician members of their family, because I think it's really, it is an unexpected story right now. And it's important for all of us to know. And I know we mentioned one of the, the topics we wanted to highlight And that is your desire for physicians to rediscover relationships. Tell us a little bit more about that. One of the things that I really worry about with medicine right now is that we are all understandably pressured by our productivity, by how the busyness of medicine, and it doesn't matter whether you're a surgeon or you're an internist or you're a pediatrician. That treadmill is running so fast, we can barely keep up. But what I worry about is what's happening to the people behind us? What's happening to our young colleagues who are residents and need to learn everything, our brand new early career attendings who are trying to get their feet underneath them in this really fast moving business of medicine? And so, you know, as as I talked to lots of folks, the ones that struck me who really had the ability to find their voice and speak up and to understand the environment that they were working in were those who had really good mentors. And the two that come to mind are Matt Ramsey and Jerry Jerry Williams in chapter one one in, I think, 10, and then Joe Bellissimo and Mark Lebusky in the, in the chapter about Tristan. And I, f- I feel like that making that intentional decision and investment in the young colleagues who are coming behind you, who will be your, your, who will be your colleagues. We Taking just care of you when you're sick. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's that too. Yes. But they're also taking they're they're the ones who will have your back at work and who will understand with you what the challenges are that you're going through who can help you build co- you know together you can build coalitions to make change i i just think we we underestimate the power of those sorts of relationships I completely agree. I think the most useful we're at is mid-career where we can help the younger person and the the older because like when you're younger, you need support, but when you're older, you need to stay on top of technology. So we actually all need each other. Um, and I like that idea about redirecting or rediscovering relationships. And we saw this with COVID too, with isolation. We were all separate from each other. I have a great hospital. It's a community bed or a 250 bed community hospital. And we would meet for a lunch. I mean, you just drift down there, lunch mm-hmm. is free. The administrations offer that too. So we it, it brought us together. And for a couple of years, we couldn't do that. And we've just now started doing this and starting to realize just how important that is. And I, I 100% agree that rediscovering these relationships and avoiding the biggest problem that I see is isolation. 
And if you could eliminate that, we could really help just exponentially help each other. Well, yeah. And if you, I mean, if if you think about it, even with the EHR, mm -hmm. we no longer pick up the phone and call each other because we have to route it through the EHR for meaningful use. Right. So we are, so, so even our technology is driving us into silos. Mm -hmm. And our notes, like our email inboxes are filled with everybody else's agenda. Right. And our usefulness is probably this much you have to sort through to get there. Yes. Such a great point. You mentioned another point that you wanted people to take home with is learning to defend ourselves. So tell us a little bit about that. The stories of several of the doctors that I talked to and many, many, many that I talked to on background were of being blindsided by, by some sort of interaction with administration that was in conflict where administrators either labeled the physician with something, threatened the physician with something, and they were shocked. And I think because we have always done medicine, we don't really understand the how a corporatized environment works. We don't understand... And I'm not saying that there's malice involved either. It's a different culture. They're doing the best they can. Right. But it's also quite a different culture and a different way of thinking. And so what physicians, I think, often do is we presume that other people think like we do. And we forget that our training has made us quite different than most people. We reason differently we approach problems quite differently. We approach our own skill set and our own abilities quite differently than a lot of other people do. But not everybody does it like we do. And when we don't understand others' motivations, others' pressures, it's very easy for us to get into situations that are beyond our abilities to manage. So understanding, I think the first step that we have to take is to understand what the environment is that we're working in. Who are the people who have sway over us? What are they like? What are their motivations? What are their aspirations? And what are the very first signs that there's trouble? It may be just that spidey sense that I don't know why, but there's, this makes me uneasy. That's the point when we need to start doing something. Yes. Not, <laughs> not when we're getting the call from the administrator saying, hey, I want you in my office tomorrow morning at seven. Right. Right. It's that when I have that spidey sense that something is just not quite right. Mm-hmm. And I also really want physicians to get more comfortable with talking to lawyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's actually kind of fascinating if you think about it. Like our hesitancy to talk to lawyers is not much different than patients' hesitance to talk to doctors. <laughs> it seems very intimidating. We don't know. We don't know what the right answer is. We feel like we should. So it makes a lot of sense for us to just start to recognize that this is what our patients deal with all the time, reaching out to people for help and not understanding 
if they're getting good information or not. I wonder, I noticed in the second chapter with Hannah, her, I can see where she couldn't see her spidey sense for the administration changes because she was so busy. As they let physicians go, filled nurse practitioners in, in their place, she was worried about the effects, but so busy trying to catch up, making sure things weren't missed. And, you know, I think that there was a sentence in there that just kind of stopped me short, where she said she was worried about the effect that had her patients and the administration handled it for her. They resolved her worry by firing her. And, you know, they had plans for replacing her for a nurse practitioner. So I think the one aspect is when we get caught up in trying to do the right thing and get overwhelmed, that we may be missing those spidey senses because we know something is wrong, but it's hard to pinpoint. Sometimes we think I'm just not doing enough is the spidey sense. And that's so we double down and try to do it harder, not realizing the problem is the there's more going on than we think. Well, and I also think in that case, it was unimaginable to her that there would be no that there would be no specialist physicians available to care for inpatient patients. And so it, she 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 could not fathom that. And what that says to me is that's that right there is a is a mismatch between what her ethical obligations are as a as a physician versus the the goals and ethics the business goals and ethics mm-hmm. she's trying to take care keep her patients alive and the administrators are trying to keep their organization alive right it doesn't mean that either one of them is bad mm-hmm. but they have very different goals right that sometimes are in conflict with each other so How would you recommend someone defending themselves? You mentioned lawyers. What are other ways that people can defend themselves? Oh, the best way to defend yourself is to know exactly what all of the hospital policies, guidelines, the guidelines of your specialty societies, you know, whatever governs, governs your practice in the places where you practice, you really should know. And, and ideally, you can quote them line and verse. If you can't quote them line and verse, then you can at least know exactly where to put your fingers on them. Because those are the things that will that you can use to defend your practice, to push back, to ask questions. You know, I think in, in Ray Bravant's chapter, he basically got to the point of saying, which of these do you want me to practice by? Because these two things are in conflict with each other. I can either follow hospital policies or I can follow the guidelines of the ACS. I can't do both. So true. Right. So which do you want me to follow? I I, I don't, I will follow either one, but tell me which. And what a great way to present that because it's not like, you're bad, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, it's focusing on the problem and not the people within the problem. I think it's a genius way to approach that. Right. And the the other genius thing that he did was he learned, you know, there, there, they were a level two, I think they were a level two trauma center. And he went to the administration and he said, by the way, if we don't do X, Y, or Z, we are going to lose our trauma designation. If we lose our trauma designation, then we are going to lose this amount of income. And so 
understanding why something is important to your administrator so that you can make a logical case for it is important too. That doesn't always have to do with money, but it has to do with what they care about. Completely agree. So let's think now of thinking of the patients, you know, that being one of the take-home message. When we look at thinking of working through the system is remembering the effect that this ultimately has on the patients. I think that's what we're getting to. So when you mentioned the point of let's, you know, think of the patients, what does that mean to you? That's that's the reason all of us went into this field for the most part. I mean, there are always people in every field who are mercenaries. So you know, let's just admit that and get beyond it. But I think the vast majority of physicians go into healthcare, go into medicine to take care of patients. The challenge is when you're in Ray Bravant's situation and you're saying, I can cover all of those four areas that you want me to cover in the hospital, but somebody's going to get hurt. When you're Hannah and you're saying, what's going to happen to my patients now that I'm not in the hospital anymore and they don't have access to a physician? That, I think we have to do, as physicians, we have to, we're patient advocates. And that's one of the places where we can leverage our knowledge and our understanding of what might happen if administrative decisions are carried out, right? Because ultimately the patients come into the hospital trusting that they will be cared for, that they will be cared for to the best of a physician's capability right and i'm not sure that there's any any patient out there right now who believes that they'll go to a hospital and not see a physician or that the physician will be too busy to care for them when they're in the middle of their heart attack or their stroke or whatever right so i think we always keeping the patient at the center of the argument was something that Ray did incredibly well. He always went back to, this is a patient safety issue. This is not an, I don't want to work this way issue. This is a, I am worried about my patients issue. It's another great way to frame that of, you know, reminding us that that is why we're all here. And, but also understanding everyone's perspective, like you've mentioned too, where the physician wants to do the best job by the patient and the administrators want to keep the hospital open so there's a place to go <laughs> and that the supply chains right. are met and all these other things. And so there's so many different moving parts in there too. And you know, continuing to remind yourself, not just the problem, focusing on the problem, but also focusing on the reason why we do things. So I think that balancing those two as front and center for all of us is puts us in more neutral ground where everyone can certainly agree on those aspects. Right. Well, we hope. Well, yes. <laughs> as much as we can. I think there's this freeing thought if you think everyone is just doing the best they can and we can help. <laughs> we can help. Yeah. Them. And I, I also think, so I heard a talk by someone who had been a CEO of a, of a physician group for a decade. He was not a clinician. 
And he said, I had no idea how the extent of the challenges that physicians face and the risk for them to them of standing up and speaking out. I had no idea. He had led physicians for a decade. What that says to me is not that he's a bad guy because I know he's not. Mm -hmm. What it says is it is very hard to understand what it's like to be a physician unless you are one. And that we really need to, to do a better job of not taking what we know for granted and being much more explicit in how we convey our reasoning for things. Yeah. And I completely agree. I think one thing is we, we forget how much knowledge we have and other people just don't know. It was, I had a primary care physician ask me, you know, I was like, I said, how can I help you? I'm a general surgeon. And said, how can I help you? And he's like, what do you do? And I was like, what do you mean you don't know what I do? Well, it's, it's the same concept too. It's like, we know what we do. We know what we're capable of, but we also take it for granted a little bit. One, actually all the things we really do do and, and knowing our value, but recognizing that other people don't see it either. And I think that we have a, a culture of not promoting ourselves. I mean, I think that's very frowned upon. And, and so what happens is that we don't actually share the knowledge that we have and we're not building on that empowerment that, that we, you know, naturally have. I mean, we work so hard for all of this. It's actually okay to say that. <laughs> and I think that yeah. leads to the other point that you wanted to convey, which I think is great of, you know, rediscovering the physician, rediscovering their value and rediscovering their voices so tell us a little bit more about that concept. I think we've talked about it a fair bit already, that this sense of we go through this intensive, rigorous training for three, you know, seven, 10, 12 years. And we come out of it and we have, and we continually have to prove ourselves worthy over and over and over and over again. We take our boards, we take our maintenance of, of certification, we renew our boards, we, you know, on and on. And I think that puts us in a position of feeling like we're, we're never doing enough or at least questioning, am I doing enough? Am I actually going to pass those boards in 10 years? Right. And, and I think that puts us in a position of forgetting everything, how we have changed from when we were a senior in college until where we are now. And, and I, I had a, my, my last boss was a cardiologist. And at one point we were the only two physicians. No, we were two out of three physicians in a 2000 person corporation. And at one point he, he, came up to me after hours and only the three physicians were in the building. And he said, we're just different. I've been watching this a lot and I can't put my finger on it, but we think differently You know, we are different. And so I think because we work in, we work with each other. Mostly we don't work with, with other sectors very often. We forget that. But we are master analysts. 
right? And we have a thought process that is incredibly rigorous and that, and that goes in lightning speed from I've defined a problem to I have defined potentially five different solutions to that problem. And that also, I mean, I think that does lead to one of our Achilles heels, which is that we are quite impatient, right? No. <laughs> yeah. We know. <laughs> right. And because we're used to, we're used to identifying the problem and at least trying a solution. Yes. But, but this process of we have to get it through a committee and then we have to get approval from another committee and then we have to get sign off from this person and that department really right like, can't we just can't we can we just move yes. and so what happens is if we get a no we sort of throw up our hands and say well okay i guess that's not going to work instead of saying well okay that was that was not the answer i had expected let's get some feedback and let's keep going after it so you know it's a way to say we have some real strengths and i think I would love for us to rediscover what that value is rather than focusing on the, am I actually good enough? And then using those strengths, using that value and those strengths to be able to speak up when it's important for our patients, for our practice, for our colleagues, so that we don't lose sight of this profession that we are so enamored of. And I think the one other Achilles heel that we have is that we don't actually see that we're different. You know, I think that we think other people think the way that we do. And so one aspect is just recognizing that we may have to have a little patience with other people who don't understand how we think. Correct. And correct. So through all of this, where do you see like what would be the most important thing that you would want this book to do for other people? If you were to declare like, this is exactly what I wanted this to do. What is it in your mind that you wanted this book to do for you? Or and maybe for the profession, not, not personally. Yeah, I didn't want it. This book was never about me. <laughs> in fact, at all. I did not at all. Yeah, no. And I didn't, I, I did not set out to write this book a book that's quite as personal as this one is. Yeah. So what, just as a, as an interesting aside, we were about eight months into writing and one day my, my editor called me and said, I think the book needs to go in a different direction. Ooh. And, and I was about three or four chapters from being done. I could see the end and, and, she was right. She was absolutely 100% right. But whew, that was a rough week. I bet. Because we had to go back and start all over again because it, it really was a different direction. So we had to like restructure the, the chapters. I wanted this. I mean, really what I wanted was for the book to explain to others what it's like to be a physician. What's the training that we go through? What are the pressures that we feel? Um, what are our goals? I wanted patients to know that our goals are the same as theirs. Mm -hmm. No matter, no matter what the media says, no matter what your insurance company says, no matter what, you know, sort of common wisdom is that people, how people think of doctors, the sort of stereotype that we're people 
we care deeply about them. We carry them with us for our entire lives. You know, I was, I was just this past weekend with my best friend from internship and we were, we were reminiscing about all the patients that we took care of that year. And, you know, I'm not sure that patients understand that, that they really deeply impact us Mm -hmm. and we don't forget them. Right. And so, and so I, you know, I wanted, I wanted people to understand that. And I wanted physicians not to feel like they were alone Mm -hmm. because I've heard that too many times. And I want us to know a couple of stories of success so that we know that it's possible and we can start moving in that direction. That's actually very similar to the mission that I have with the the podcast, which started off me talking, just me, like mind-numbingly boring. Are you kidding me? (laughs) But when I started talking to other people, I was like, this is exactly what it's about. You know, showing the hero's journey of what people do and saying that, you know, you could now see it's possible. So I think by sharing these stories is so much more impactful because it we recognize ourselves in that story and it automatically gives us an option that maybe we hadn't, one that's proven because someone has done it. And so I think that that's probably why your book is so impactful because we could see ourselves like in that first chapter. I mean, that basically describes a lot of the things that I experienced going through surgery, residency and training and all the things. I mean, we recognize that and we can look at it from a bit of a distance and see it and remind ourselves of who we are in that and offering us the ability to kind of come up with a different idea. I think whatever direction you were going, I'm not sure where that was, but you certainly nailed the right one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a big part of the sharing those stories, sharing the, they're sharing the stories of the physicians, but also sharing some of the conversations that we've had with other experts was a reason to write the book. It's the reason why we do our podcast. It's, you know, we want to get information out to arm people for change. Yes. And I want to also make sure to highlight your podcast. Tell us a little bit about your podcast, what it's called and what your mission is. And what are some of the things that maybe you remember the most about the podcast that people really should check out? Tell us more. Oh boy. I mean, so we started this in the fall of 2020 when we realized that people were exhausted by reading because we everybody was was consuming so much printed material and digital material trying to keep up with the pandemic and we thought you know maybe if we do a podcast we can we can share things differently and so that was that was the initial impetus and and then we started having the opportunity to talk to some really interesting people like Ron Purser, who wrote McMindfulness, like Jerry Mueller, who wrote The Tyranny of Metrics, like Don Berwick, who founded the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, like David Voza, who talked to us about legal emergencies for physicians. And so we started, we just thought we can't have these conversations and keep them to ourselves. We want to share them with people because they were fascinating. And so that was really the impetus for the podcast. And it's called Moral Matters. We have two seasons a year, usually, every other week, spring and fall. Yes. 
I love it. I mean, I never thought of it from that perspective. You're right. I mean, I think that we were given so much information all the time that consuming it in a different way was definitely attractive at that point. I think that really spurred a lot of creativity and recognizing that change need to happen. I've heard the pandemic called the great pause. And there's, I think, a lot of truth in that too. I mean, we had just a global change that allowed us to expand in a different direction. And and maybe in the end, all of this was really worthwhile. It's challenging, certainly in the meantime. Yeah. So is there any last thing, anything that we haven't covered that you want to share or any last thoughts? Boy, no, you know, I am really grateful for your interest in the book. I'm grateful that people are finding it helpful. I mean, I will say every time someone says to me, this is it's this is great it really helps me to describe my experience my simultaneous thoughts are i'm so glad that it makes you feel not alone or feel like you can better describe your experience and at the same time i'm heartbroken that you need it right so i hope that we all can come together and start start building coalitions of like minds so that we can make change. Cause I would like nothing more than to work myself out of this job <laughs> <laughs> that we actually come to change and that work is more sustainable for all of our healthcare workers yes, and lawyers and, and veterinarians and teachers who have also come to us. Completely agree. Yes. I think there's a lot of universality in these stories too. So I do hope that everything catches on. And I also agree with you too. Wouldn't it be nice to be put out of business because no one needs help? I'm so grateful that you are here and it's such an honor to have you on. And I'm so grateful for everything you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.